sit back in your seats, get something to eat, and watch this movie. Don't let the kids see it, because, well, then, let, we'll let you hear the, the um, beginning of Thank you. Hello and welcome to Left of the Projector. I am your host Evan, back again with another film discussion from the left. The show recently hit a milestone of 30 episodes. It's hard to believe we've gotten this far, and I couldn't do it without the support of my listeners, guests, and everyone who supports the show. As a reminder, you can follow along on Instagram and TikTok at Left of the Projector Pod. This week, I bring you a slightly different episode but with the same film analysis you've come to expect. I joined Eddie of Midwestern Marks to discuss the movie Platoon. I joined a live stream on his YouTube channel, so you will find answers to live questions that happened during the broadcast and a bit deeper analysis into politics of the time, history of U.S. interventions, and a lot more. So the episode goes a little longer than normal. I hope you enjoy the conversation. What's up, Midwestern Marks, comrades, fans, friends? I'm here with Evan of the Left of the Projector podcast. I'm doing something a little unique today, um, for us anyways. This is kind of what uh, Evan does over on his, his channel or with his podcast. Um, a movie review of Oliver Stone's, what is it, 1986 movie, I believe? Yep. Um, yeah, 1986 movie, Platoon, so a classic um, and a movie that's very critical of the the Vietnam War. So thanks for being with us, Evan. Yeah, thanks for having me so much. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah, it's, this is a a great movie, and really, um, I feel like it's one of the few times you actually get like an anti Vietnam War or any anti war movie at all in Hollywood. So it's uh, I think it's worth talking about. For sure, um, I'm sure you know better uh, about this than me, but. It's kind of crazy when you look into the influence that the DOD and the Pentagon and, um, you know, the, the U.S. government in general or the um, U.S. empire in general, how much control they have over Hollywood. Um, yeah, there's a there's a lot. Uh, I actually just ordered a book that I'm waiting to get that goes into this even further. But I mean, starting in the 80s, they basically were any movie where there is any military presence, you have to get it approved by the Pentagon. They have their own office their own section and it's only grown like think of the movie top gun i mean it's like the ultimate example i think when i when i think of movies like that where the pentagon just wrote the script basically right literally the dod was involved with all the filming i just i just learned that today that um rule that you said about the military where if you know you use any military gear um, then you have to follow very strict guidelines as to you know how you're supposed to portray the U.S. military. Right. So, they they don't want like if you have a World War II movie, they want it to be in a positive light. I think being this movie being like anti-Vietnam War, I'm sure. I, I often wonder like how much worse was this movie originally before they probably changed it. It might have been even more critical. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to see how much Oliver Stone got through. I mean, he's a pretty prolific you know movie uh movie writer director so he had a little bit of sway in hollywood i suspect yeah it's kind of crazy that he's been able to have the career he's had given you know his borderline tanky politics <laughs> <laughs> basically i mean he has multiple movies about he has one movie about jfk 
um, from a while back. And then another movie about JFK basically saying everything we said about JFK has now been confirmed by evidence. Yep. Um, he's got a movie now, Ukraine on Fire, about the, the conflict in Ukraine, the U.S.-NATO coup in 2014. Like, there's no issue he's afraid to tackle, really. So it's it's impressive that he's had such a successful career as a director. And, and it's funny. I feel like he's had movies that kind of go both ways. Like, Born on the Fourth of July is, like, kind of... I don't want to call it, like, glorification completely because he definitely still has his little spin on it. But, yeah, I mean, he's really made a career out of not being afraid to go after, you know, American imperialism and American intervention. And Vietnam War, like, I feel like... Is one of those wars where you know you can actually criticize it, and it's not as bad as if you criticize, you know, like World War II or something like that. Right. At least at this point, um, you know, years yeah. later, we have the Pentagon Papers now, and all this leaked information about um, all the you know lies that were told to get us into Vietnam, and um, yeah. I mean, I think I, it's funny, I, I think I was telling you before is I was kind of skimming the section in this book, Killing Hope by William Blum, where he talks about the Pentagon Papers. I think the new updated version did. And all the things that we did to get into Vietnam is just pretty much insane. I mean, I mean, it's, it's no different than any war that the U.S. engaged. I mean, it's very similar, I think, to the Korean War. I think I was uh, talking about how they involve themselves and they use the pretense of oh well the north was attacking the south is kind of like their their go-to line right yeah it's very similar and then you have the u.s there is more obviously ground presence in vietnam than korea but you have the u.s trying to just back their preferred groups and basically do aerial bombing campaigns um almost indiscriminately you know targeting civilians um obviously 20 percent of the north korean population was killed so yeah, I think the number I was seeing for Vietnam is after effects of napalm is somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 million Vietnamese, either wow. deaths or, you know, long term lasting effects of, of it. And then I'm sure and then I think it's 600,000 American troops, something crazy. Maybe wow. that's a little bit high. Maybe that's slightly high. I thought it was 600,000. And that's that a lot. Yeah. And then I mean, that doesn't even include Cambodia. Um, that's true. We, right. I don't know if the 3 million includes Cambodia or not. Right. That's where Kissinger said if it flies or moves, um, bomb it, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think in Platoon, it, they do a good job of, as we'll, we'll get into the movie, I think, but I think that sure. they do a good job of showing really what the strategy was, which was surround a village, burn it to the ground, and if they get overtaken, just napalm the crap out of it and just destroy them. It wasn't really... There was no strategy at all. And, and actually, I... There was a good quote that I found from um, another book I was skimming through was Michael Harris Dispatches, which was him in, I think, 1967 to 69, something like that, where he basically spent time interviewing people. And he said something to the effect of, um, I'll have to find the exact quote, but it's it's pretty damn. Oh, it says, they killed a lot of communists, but that's all they did because the number of communists dead meant nothing. Nothing changed. So they didn't, they weren't going after hearts and minds they were just killing commies right literally i mean and that's what's it's so ironic you know we're gonna stop the spread of communism by killing millions of people because you know the communists might kill people um <laughs> yeah. the, the famous american double standard right literally and i like one of my favorite scenes and spoiler alert i guess for the movie as we're kind of getting into it now but um elias the the sergeant who kind of shows 
the good or the human represents the humanity of the soldiers, um, which is a major theme of this movie. Yeah. Um, which I think says something about Stone um, and his sort of, you know, patriotism or love of America or not wanting America to be what it is. Um, it's a major theme in a lot of his movies. Um, and yeah, Elias is just talking about like, I, I thought this war was winnable when I came here, but now I recognize it's not. We're literally just killing and, and being killed for no reason. Um which, you know, and you think about all the Vietnam troops who came back with PTSD, like what kind of mental toll did that take on them to realize, you know, basically they were being lied to. And a lot of them kind of figured out they were fighting for, for nothing except capital expansion. Yeah. I mean, in, in dispatches, he interviews a lot of people and obviously they take photos. And he was saying he would meet kids, you know, literally their kids that are like 19, 20. And he would look in their eyes and say they look like they're 30 or 40 just because the effects of that war just turn them into shells you know literally they're just husks of people that they had to just keep going they had no other choice and um i think that like the this like the one like the one major theme that i think is a good starting point for the movie is just why are we there like what's the point of this war and i think charlie sheen's character who's sort of the main um point of view of the movie he i think the very first line he says or the second line he's like what the fuck am i doing He's he's just walking on. He already doesn't understand this. Yeah, and as soon as he lands, he sees someone come out in a body bag. Um, yeah. And I thought one of the more interesting parts of the movie was the class dynamics. They made Charlie Sheen. He wasn't someone, <clears throat> the main character wasn't someone who got drafted. He was a volunteer from the middle class who, who truly thought he was going to serve his country. And I mean, right away, like 15 minutes into the film, he's saying, you know, most of the people here are poor or from the end of the line. <clears throat> um, and he says yeah. fighting for our society and fighting for our freedom, even though, you know, they live in poverty, um, which is, yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Yeah. I mean, I think he what's even crazier is he says later he was in college. He drops out of college and it's like a F you to his parents who like want him to be this, I don't know, like, kind of like the standard you know, middle class, upper middle class kind of person. And he drops out of college and to his parents' dismay and joins Vietnam. And other people around him can't believe it. They're like, we're here because we have no other choice, you know? And, and I think a lot of the thing about Vietnam especially is that I think I saw that only 25% of the soldiers actually were drafted. So 75% of Vietnamese wow. were actually enlisted. Wow. And it's mostly from the South, you know, and they're exploited because they have no other course. They don't even have diplomas, you know? I think he right. says that. I think it's like it's kids here with high school diplomas or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a testament to U.S. propaganda. That's a testament to McCarthyism and the amount of anti-communist sentiment that there was at the time. Um, yeah. And just what we say today that, you know, you basically don't even need a draft because – economic conditions are so bad the military is what a lot of people see as their only way out um a lot of yeah no it's true it's it's funny I, the the movie i did a couple uh, the most recent episode was on forrest gump which i think is like the such an opposite version of this it's like super propaganda pro-war and in that mm -hmm. they you know they talk about how a bunch of kids from alabama like he was go to the go into the military because they have no he has a college degree but he has no like he doesn't have like a rich family member or some job lined up. So these kids had nothing. And 
you know, in America in the 19, mid 1960s, wasn't exactly the American dream that we were, uh, that they were being sold, you know, right. for a large segment of America anyway. For sure. And it, it is also, you not only see, you know, him with his, his platoon squadron or his, his comrades, not only do they have a difference in class, but, or, or they have different reasons for being there. You know, a lot of them yeah. were drafted or forced and he chose to go. But then you think about the Viet Minh or the Vietnamese civilians, like they had this death, destruction and warfare literally brought to their doorstep for no reason for trying to, you know, go forward with a system of governance where they brought themselves out of poverty and, you know, educated people and, and did things for the social good. You know, all the things um, they tried to create a socialist society. And because of that, you know, tons and tons of Agent Orange and Napalm um were brought to them and you think about that with the or i thought about that with the scene um where they go into the village um, and end up committing a massacre and, and torching um this civilian village because before that the soldiers see their comrades who have been killed and and you know one of them has been hung up on a pole and it makes them angry they want revenge um but and and that's a you know normal human reaction at that point in the movie you empathize with them but the U.S. is at Vietnam's doorstep. You know, they're literally just defending their home. Um, so U.S. troops are basically in this impossible position where, they, you know, they had to had to fight for the imperial death machine um, and, you know, hate these people who really had done nothing, you know. And, and you see, like, there were so many massacres committed in Vietnam, um, partially because there was like no oversight, but also just because the U.S. was constantly losing. You know, they didn't know how to fight on this terrain. Uh, they were, you know, the, the soldiers were constantly f in fear and paranoid, um, which they do a very good job of portraying in the movie. And, you know, they would freak out and do things like massacre civilians and torch the whole village. Um, and, you know, it does, the movie above all else i think it does a great job of showing how senseless the war was and how it was just from a human rights perspective and and even from an economic perspective when you look at the way you know vietnam's infrastructure was blown up um just a senseless disaster oh you're muted evan on oh, me yeah the scene there the scene you're talking about they um you know it's almost like, it, it, well, another thing, a thing about the movie too, is you were talking about the, the sort of like this split amongst the troops going with sort of like the crazy, we're going to just be senseless killers versus the people who are understand how ridiculous the war is. And it, it's, you know, I think that's a good, probably a, a, actually what was happening. People there just were counting the days until they could go home. They're just going to try and get through it. And other people just like, I can live out my fantasy to just, you know, kill a bunch of people. And unfortunately, I think that was partly their own beliefs, maybe. And also just, I mean, I can't imagine what that does to your, like just to your psyche being there and seeing this. And you just want to be part of it, right? You think you're being told that these Vietnamese are, are monsters, like destroying the American way of life. And so. You just lash out and they and and, then, and Charles Sheen's character tries to he steps in when a, a woman is being raped, saying this, not to do it. And he's trying to 
be a good person, but you know, he's one against many. So that, that whole scene is, is just, you know, there's probably hundreds of those like the, just like the melee massacre. Yeah. There's another one, you know, exactly. Right. Old John and, McCain. Right. And you have Barnes too, the, the Sergeant who kind of, you have <clears throat> this one Sergeant Elias who kind of represents the, the soldier's humanity. And like yeah. you said, you know, understanding what the war is and that it's not winnable and that it's senseless. And then you have this crazed Sergeant Barnes who represents, you know, like you said, just kind of losing yourself in, mm -hmm. in the violence and, you know, fulfilling this fantasy. And there's such a good line. At one point he says, like, you know, I'm going to go back to America and I'm going to be a, a war hero. They're going to give me medals. <laughs> I'm going to be decorated. He's probably right. You know, I mean, look at the American Sniper movie about Chris Kyle. You know, yeah, celebrated God, for killing a bunch crazy. of Iraqis, a, a country that we illegally and offensively invaded, killing millions of people at the behest of multinationals um, and oil companies. And, you know, he comes back and he, there's a movie made about him, a shitty movie that wins Best Picture. Um, <laughs> that movie's so, terrible. It is. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it shows how we celebrate violent war criminals and you know, it creates a certain kind of person. Yeah. Reads a certain kind of person, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the, the entire thing, like, um, you know, I mean, the, yeah. So, and, and one thing that's just a complete aside to anyone who maybe hasn't seen this movie, the cast is also just insanely like from end to end. Everyone is like a great actor. Like you probably would recognize everyone in this movie, Charlie Sheen, Willem Dafoe, Forrest Whitaker, uh, that's I think true. even Johnny Depp, Depp is in the movie too, yeah. which yeah. is like a little side character and Keith David. I mean, it's just packed full of people. It's just a little side note, just because just because it's a war movie doesn't mean they didn't have some seriously good acting too. Yeah. I noticed that too. And when Johnny Depp was just like a random guy who died in the woods, I was like, Whoa, there's a lot of good, good actors in this movie. Um, the one, I guess, this is a good comment from Papa Squats here that says, do you think it's a disservice to the Vietnamese when focusing attention on the American loss, PTSD, yeah. death, et cetera, as opposed to focusing on the Vietnamese experience? That would be, after watching the film, I thought that was my one critique, um, was I would have liked to see a Viet Minh character um, or, or some kind. I mean, they, they have you empathize, emphasize with the civilians. Um, but never even really with the troops or the people fighting who, like I said, are people defending their country. You know, right. they're, they're not offensive. Right. No, they're actually fighting for freedom. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, and if you want to take a stab at that question. Yeah. Too. I mean, I, th I think that's I think that's probably like uh, easily like the biggest criticism of the movie. And I think probably in Oliver Stone's head, he's not looking at it from that. I mean, being america american you can say that's his perspective he's making this movie to critique america's involvement in the war and i don't really think there's any i'm trying to think if there's any movies about the vietnam war where you kind of get the vietnamese perspective and the only thing i can think of in apocalypse now you too you do kind of get that american siding with you know, Vietnam, but you don't get it from a humanitarian perspective. You get it from like a, this guy went crazy and now he's joined the Viet Cong or something. So yeah, that's, I, I would agree that it's a little bit not surprising. Right. And act, I mean, that's interesting that in a, I haven't seen apocalypse now, but that's interesting that they portray him as crazy. Cause there were people, there are quite a few 
um, American troops in Korea who switched sides. And, you know, there were cases of that in Vietnam. Like, I think that would make an interesting movie. Um, follow these people who switch sides, you know, and hear why they did it. Um, whether it had anything to do with the human rights abuses they were committing or, you know, if they were disillusioned. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, that's kind of crazy that people switch sides, but yeah, I mean, so I think in one of the, in the, in the book that I was looking through dispatches, he mentions a couple times how, because so the movie apocalypse now I think is based on part of the story that came from that book. I think some of the script was written by him as the journalist who was there. So in that movie, it's like Marlon, Marlon Brando plays this decorated special forces colonel who goes rogue. Basically that's his, and it's based in Cambodia. So it's not quite, it's close to Vietnam, you know, they're on the border, but that movie is pretty much, it's, it's a different movie and much darker than this. Hmm. I'll have to give that a watch sometime. Um, I noticed we were talking about this before the stream. Um, there's actually a movie that came out like two years after Platoon. It's like this <laughs> low budget movie called Platoon Leader. So, I mean, clearly a ripoff um, and the film received criticism for it. It only made a million dollars at the box office. Yeah. So not a successful film, but basically the the whole point is to glorify war. You know, the soldiers are basically superheroes gunning down the evil Viet Minh or Viet Cong as they're um, referred to uh, by the American troops. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and there's even a line in that movie. I was reading about it a little bit because it fascinated me. There's a line in that movie where they're fighting the Viet Minh and one of them comes up and says, you know, now I finally know why we're fighting this war. Be meaning like, because those Viet Minh are so evil and nasty and bad, we just got to take them all down. It's fun. I mean, it just shows the stupidity of imperialist arguments um, compared to this movie, Platoon, um, which is critical of imperialism and much more intelligent in the way it goes about portraying the war. Oh, yeah. I saw someone say that they they never refer to them by their actual Viet Minh. It's never re referred to as that. It's always any movie about Vietnam is always Viet Cong. It's never or VC or NVA. Um, it's not exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, it would be, I, I don't, I wonder if there's even any Vietnam, Vietnam movies really made recently. I, I, I can't think of any that come out anymore. Now, like now you're getting like Iraq war, Afghan war, you know, soon you're going to get, you know, what Ukraine war or something. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. They're still making movies about the Holodomor. Um, <laughs> is, there, is there a movie about that recently? Uh, it was one in like 2017. It was called like Bitter Harvest. Um, oh, geez. So I, I guess they haven't that given one. that one up. But um, yeah, another part of the movie I was, I mean, there, you're obviously going to get some disturbing imagery um, with any war movie, but especially one that's supposed to make you realize the senselessness and the reality of uh, warfare and combat. But one of the more um, disturbing ones is when there's um, a disabled person with one leg. Um, yeah. And he basically, you know, the U.S. soldiers uh, torture him and kill him. Um, one of the soldiers decides not to kill him and then the other one does. And I mean, I've and this is an, a personal anecdote, but I've one of my friends in the military has told me that they heard a story from one of the people in their platoon that basically that happened in Afghanistan. 
Um, but they like, they were raiding a house and, um, they, they gunned down somebody who was disabled, um, and basically lied about it. And, you know, this is a secondhand story. This is me hearing this from my friend who heard it from someone in the military, but you know, this kind of, you might think that's like gratuitous or over the top, but like, it's the kind of stuff that happens. Um, especially, like I said, when you're in that combat, um, situation, you're tense and you're constantly on edge and fighting for your life. I mean, I think, I mean, it's, yeah, when I saw that, that scene, it's, it, I, I thought the same way, like, oh, is this over the top? But then I'm thinking, no, like they, they're trained. I mean, that's the thing about like Barnes's character. He is instilled in them that you have to basically shoot first. You cannot, you know, the, it, you know, he'll stand up for you if there's a, a hearing or whatever it is, you know, on your behalf. That was another kind of thing also is that when there was sort of some controversy, they all kind of circle around Barnes and will say like, we'll, we'll tell the story you want to be told. So it really doesn't surprise me that they would do that. And I mean, this is not like meant to be a defense of the soldiers or their actions, but they're, they're, they're honestly must all just be terrified all the time. I mean, like they can't sleep. They, they're like half the group is like doing drugs because otherwise they can't live through this event too, which I think is another interesting aspect of this movie. It is. And also totally true. Like there is lots and lots of drug use when people were there. So it's uh can't imagine. Yeah. Someone I know who is stationed in Afghanistan told me it's the same thing with the opium um, that's grown there. Um, it's just everywhere. And people you just take it because of, um, to, to relax and like you said try and get away from constantly being on edge and, and fearing for your life um and, and yeah like you were saying about barnes there's one point where he's like criticizing um washington dc and it's the only time where someone i think says something like explicitly political um when he's like you know when's washington or when are the idiots in washington going to give us basically the go-ahead to shoot first the <laughs> go-ahead to massacre civilians so they're not complaining that they're there they're not complaining that they're in this uh, senseless warfare situation. They're complaining, or he's complaining, that the government won't give them the green light to gun down civilians, <laughs> yeah. which they do anyways. Yeah, they they're not they're not um, shy about what they're doing. I mean, yeah, and and um, what was I gonna? There's something else about the like their the drug thing that I was thinking about. It'll come back to me. Actually, one thing I noticed, and I, only because I know that you're a wrestler, I think at one point the lieutenant is wearing a wrestling t-shirt. I don't know if you caught that like, <laughs> little little bit. Like there, I think I it was they're playing poker and drinking. He like walks into the room or something, and he has on like a wrestling shirt from Pennsylvania. Or I don't know where it was from, but I was like, oh yeah, you know, they're just. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes sense though that that might be someone who's a, a lieutenant or someone who's in charge because he has strategy. You know, totally. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of wrestlers in the military. And I mean, this is not super related, but I've heard, you know, um, if you put on your resume that you were a wrestler or if you were in the military, that's what they tell wrestlers growing up. Like if you finish wrestling in college or if you put on your resume that you're in the military, you can get hired anywhere. So there's a lot of overlap. You know, we do wrestling teams, do military appreciation nights all the time. Um, recruiters are... Um, they prey on college students. Um, so, yeah, 
Um, a lot of overlap there. I wish I would have seen that. I would have written it in my notes. Um, yeah, I, I, I was like, it was like a really quick thing. I don't think I ever had noticed. I mean, I, I'm not usually, usually when I'm watching a movie, I'm not like making notes of things as I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's uh, an interesting um, thing. And the, and the other thing too about this, this I know we've kind of like jumped around a bit, but the one thing about the movie that we talked about class a little bit, like as far as, you know, most of the people there are probably pretty, you know, poor uh, working class families. But you, there is kind of like a separation between like most of the people in the movie who are soldiers of color tend to have been with like the group that was counting the days till they got home. Whereas yeah. I feel like the, I don't know, like the the people that, that you picture as like would have become cops if that would have been like their next choice instead of going to the military. They're like excited about being there and amped up. It's kind of a weird... But they didn't treat them differently. They didn't like send the black troops in like as a front liner. You know what I mean? I know there's right. there's been talk I've heard of that in other in Vietnam and other wars where you know they put the the people of color up front. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but now that looking back on it, you're right. All the people of color were likable characters, you know, they were they're just wanting to get home. Um had families they talked about like things they're they're ladies you know yeah and it's almost like it kind of represents what was going on domestically in the u.s you have like the sort of drug doing pot smoking hippies who are against the war you know and they're kind of on to what's happening um and then you have um people of color who are obviously at that time the most revolutionary in the u.s you have the civil rights movement going on which is every um, socialist and communist group is is backing that. You have the Black Panthers, of course, around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like the bloodthirsty neocons, basically. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like now that we're talking about it, I didn't think about this when I was watching it, but I feel like almost the groups who are there could parallel the groups back home. Um, politically. Yeah, yeah, that that's actually a good way to look at it because you could easily see, you know, I think, uh, what's his name? The guy who plays Keith, Keith Davis character, I think is King is his name. And also, um, big Harold, who's Forrest Whitaker, who isn't in the movie that much, Mm -hmm. but they both are talking about things they want to do when they get home. You know, they actually are thinking about like a life beyond Vietnam, where I feel like some of the other characters are, they don't really have any, what do they have for themselves? You know, they don't see this as they see, this is their future like moving up in the ranks in the military. The right. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much like military careerism. Um, I'm sorry. I was checking out the plot. Somebody was saying that Barnes didn't make that quote about being a, um, a war hero. It was bunny. Um, I don't remember oh, which okay. character bunny was, but it said bunny. I just want to correct this. Cause I got it wrong. Um, yeah. Sorry that's that Kevin. Uh, Kevin Dillon is the actor who plays bunny. Oh, okay. And he, yeah, he said he states no, or he says he feels no remorse for the murders. He enjoyed Vietnam and proclaims that he'll call himself Audie Murphy, a famous and highly decorated World War II hero. So Got he's it, not okay. saying he, he'll be a hero in Vietnam. He's saying he'll go home and, and be a, you know, pretend to be a World War II hero. So just to <laughs> clear, get the record straight on that. Yeah. No, yeah. I, uh, I, I wasn't sure who said that, but I thought it was. It feels like Tom Berenger, who's the Sergeant Barnes, too. I mean, his character is also like, even though he's very unlikable, he's like very, he's portrayed as like the military badass. He's got a scar on his face. You know, he's very much, 
I think he's like multiple tours of duty. You know, he knew everything. He probably was one of those people that was sent there early on as like one of those special units. I think special forces was like the early Vietnam, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're known for being obviously more hardened and doing a lot of the dirty work. And actually another, another thing about like the, the unit that was interesting. So the guy who's, who had the wrestling shirt on, I think is his Lieutenant Wolf, I think is his name. He like, doesn't, for the first three quarters of the movie, like barely is in charge. I feel like it's always Sergeant Barnes who's calling the shots and he's just kind of like, okay, fine. You know, that's what you say we'll do. And then I think later in the movie, he kind of, I, maybe he never changes actually. I feel like he's just kind of this, he, he's, he's, he, he's afraid. Whereas Barnes is not afraid. I don't know if that really plays into the movie, but it, it adds on to that like hardened, character that you have to be to survive like you can't survive the war if you're not i don't want to say tough because like you can be tough but not be a war war uh profiteer or right almost like you have to lose your humanity and you know put your life above pretty much anything else and almost embrace the situation you're in but i mean then you also have o'neill um, who is also one of the higher ups and he survives the end fight by hiding under a dead body yeah, um, which is a common thing, apparently. Really? Yeah. So there, there's, there's a. I feel like all these are like stories in dispatches. There is a a story of someone who hides under a a dead, like a bunch of dead bodies. And actually, what the Vietnamese would do after they, I guess they quote unquote won the little fight, they would go through and check all the bodies. But somehow, this particular, I wonder if that's what this was based on. That like, that was the parallel. Mm. That's interesting. I wonder. It's do you know is the burning and killing of the people in the village is that based on the My Lai massacre or anything? I was I looked into that a bunch and I couldn't find any definitive like one-to-one proof. It it sounded more like it was just meant to just represent like a common thing that happened during Vietnam. And I think that the My Lai the My Lai massacre was much bigger. I feel like there was hundreds of right. people who died whereas that was like a yeah you know, only a couple dozen. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I thought was they, you know, killed a few people and then burned the village, but they didn't kill a lot of people. Um, probably yeah. my lie was probably more deaths. Um, something that was interesting though, was how they shot the pig um, in the village. And this lady comes up and she says, you know, we're farmers, we have to make a living, which, you know, you see the economic toll that was, um, put on Vietnam by the bombing and by the destruction, destroyed their infrastructure. And Vijay Prashad says like their transition to socialism after they would have kicked the French out or after they kicked the French out would have been fairly easy. They had fairly, um, you know, their productive forces had been developed to a fairly high level after Vietnam. They had to completely rebuild because their infrastructure and their farmland was destroyed by the agent orange and the napalm. So Kind of see that in the movie um, with the the farmer protesting that they killed her pig. Yeah, and then I think there's a line too right after that where they capture one of, I think I wrote this down. Uh, yeah, so after that happens, they say to put them in the pig pen. So they literally put the just innocents from the town into like the pen, you know, I guess in like the pig, you know, shit and whatever. Like that's what they thought of the people. They're just like, you're, you're animals. I mean, that's kind of a hard to get that image away. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think they say it explicitly, like put them in the pig pen. And that's 
yeah, the first thing I thought was um, treating humans like animals. Um, and I don't know. And also, like, you might think, because that lady who's protesting them killing her pig, you might think, why is this lady doing this? This is silly or stupid. But this is just a dumb thought I had. But imagine if another country invaded the U.S., if another country was running through U.S. towns and, and doing stuff like this, like, you know, you know how many people would protest or we have like Karens in the U.S. I don't know if people don't like that word or not, but, you know, we have people who will complain about everything. You know, they'll make customer service workers lives hell um, versus these people had their home invaded their homeland trampled uh, by a country that they never attacked or never did anything to um you know it just i don't know now i see the movie from you know a, a marxist or leftist lens and against the war and i end up you know rooting for the Viet Minh against a lot of the the americans but um I don't know. Before you have that view, you're induced with a lot of propaganda and like watching the film with my my roommates. It was just interesting to hear some of the stuff they would say, you know, like, why is that lady doing that? Why is she complaining? And I'm like, because they're in her home because they're trampling her village. Like, um, I don't mean, ask it, why she's complaining. That's why they're there. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's a thing where you probably in her mind, she's thinking like, this is a bad idea. Like, you know, there's these people around me with guns. It's almost like they think that maybe because given like the time period, you weren't like texting your friend in another village, like, oh, the this is what's happening in our village. They kind of I don't know how easily news and information was traveling, but they they I mean, well, do you know this? Do you know if villages understood like the entire invasion at the time, like what was happening across the whole country? I mean, they had to have, have good information because they were preparing, they had guns you know, like hidden in the rice and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question because they had just fought the, the struggle against Japan. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, not Japan, France. against the Fran uh, French. And I mean, they were, the communists were doing what communists do, you know, educating people, teaching them about imperialism. Their, their whole revolution and anti-colonial struggle was based on Marxism, Leninism. So I have to imagine, you know, a lot of them knew, um, a lot of the ones who were educated Marxism, Leninism, but I'm sure they didn't get to everybody. You know, I'm yeah. sure there were a lot of people who never, you know, learned to read or whatever else because um, they had limited resources. And most of their resources, the socialists and communists were going towards fighting the wars. Um, so I have to imagine there were a lot who who weren't aware. Yeah. No, and and, the, and actually what's you, you mentioned the thing with uh, Vijay Prashad and kind of how they were preparing. And I was in this book it was mentioning how in the 50s ho chi minh was extremely popular i mean he was very popular and they the u.s prevented elections from happening and i think it was 1954 or no uh, i'd have to look at the year um as they do you know the the geneva convention had already occurred they said they're gonna have their elections and they wouldn't ha let them have them because ho chi minh would have gotten 80 percent of the vote and they mm -hmm. not only not only were they popular is they were prepared to move to the next phase, as you were saying, is that. So I think they're to that point, I think that people across the whole country knew what was what was happening, at least hmm. in the barest sense. That's interesting. You're probably right, um, especially if Ho Chi Minh had that high of a, an approval rating. Um, and I like this comment here from um, SCH. Ho Chi Minh was trying to appeal to the U.S.'s heart, but it got him nothing. Yeah, during... 
the anti-colonial struggle against the French, Ho Chi Minh called on the U.S. to come help um, the Vietnamese. He said, look, your constitution's based on freedom, democracy. Uh, we're trying to fight for our sovereignty here. We're trying to bring our people freedom. And instead of helping them, the U.S. waited for the French to lose their colony and then did the Vietnam War. Um, tried to basically capture this colony that the French had lost, um, bringing utter devastation um, to the country in the process. So, yeah, that's what tries. That's what happens when you try to appeal to the heart of U.S. imperialists. I guess no fault to Ho Chi Minh. He was obviously exposing yeah. their hypocrisy. Um, you know, right. he, I'm sure he knew. But and this is actually an interesting fact that you mentioned about this is that apparently um, Ho Chi Minh had a picture of George Washington on his desk. And a copy of the U.S. Constitution, or sorry, the Declaration of Independence, like next to it, and he wow. wanted to write the Declaration or sort of the Constitution for Vietnam, and I think it actually ended up starting with the same line of "All men are created equal." It's like huh. he actually looked up to not not America's actions that you know that no one would want to look up to, but he did see it as like a struggle that he could bring to his people. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. And we're kind of, I mean, this is a little bit off topic from the movie, but it's interesting backstory, especially because like you said, the, like we said earlier, the movie doesn't totally focus on the um, Vietnamese perspective or really at all. Um, but Ho Chi Minh traveled through Europe and was reading like the enlightenment thinkers. Um, and, you know, he was influenced by a lot of uh, Western ideas and in, in applying them to a Vietnamese context. And mm -hmm. I mean, he, like anybody else under colonial, um, dominance. He hated the French. He thought France was evil, uh, similar to Che Guevara in his youth, who said like he thought the U.S. was run by evil wizards and dark princes. Um, that's you know Ho Chi Minh felt like that about the France. Why would they be doing this? Why would they be doing this to us? Um, but then he goes to France and he's like, oh, the French people aren't uniquely evil. It's capitalism. You know, it's <laughs> it's the capitalist imperialists run their country and do this horrible stuff for capital expansion, and then they lie to the people at home about it. Um, yeah. So after that, he becomes a, a Marxist and a communist and attacks capitalism. Yeah, the, and the, yeah, the, I think I think you mentioned before too is that he Ho Chi Minh had basically begged Washington, D.C., you know, America for aid to fight the French, and they're like, nope, we're just going to give more stuff to the French, and you know, like a story as old as time. I mean, usually the usually they're not asking for funds, but they're always going to fund. It's kind of funny that they were America was funding France. And then when they were planning to do their treaty with Vietnam, the U.S. is like, actually, we're going to stop giving you military aid. And there was apparently a joke like in the French uh, press that the U.S. was like the biggest boost of the French economy because they were giving them all this aid, like two billion dollars or something crazy. Huh. I didn't even know that. But I mean, it makes perfect sense because you have the Marshall Plan. At the end of World War II, where the U.S. is giving all this, you know, low in all these low interest loans um, to their allies in Europe. Um, and yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they would funnel military resources and, and money until, you know, the French did did what the U.S. didn't want until they tried to make peace. Exactly. And, and they the did. Yeah. And they finally leave. And then the U.S. is like, well, we need to just stick around. That's when they started bringing in the troops. They brought in something like 800 special op forces, I think in 1955, 56, something like that. And that was sort of the precursor to, I mean, it's funny at the same time we're fighting Korea or by fighting, I mean, just bombing half the country. It wasn't really much of a fight. Right. Right. Yeah. We're 
I don't know if we said this. Um, did we say this on stream that it was a similar conflict to Korea? I don't think so. Yeah, but I, I mean that's another I think aspect of of the Vietnamese the Vietnam War is that it is very similar to the Korean War. As you know, I think it was in one of your videos you posted a couple of days ago about uh, something about the DPRK and the war, and I had a, was arguing with someone and who was saying like, Oh, well, yeah, they crossed the line. And so that's, was the, the reason that they attacked, you know, North Korea. It's like, no, that's actually just kind of a, that's not true. It's, it's not. just nonsense. It's people say the same thing about Vietnam. Like, Oh, they attacked the South. Like you can't just prop up a leader with no popular support, like plop him in this country and say, you all have to obey him. Otherwise, you know, we're going to call it an invasion. Like yeah. Singham Ri in, in, uh, South Korea. That's literally what he was. He was, came out of U or trained up in U.S. universities, and they just plopped him here. And there's like, you know, here's your president. And of course, the North nobody listened to him, and the North was going to liberate the entire uh, peninsula. And that's when the U.S. bombing campaign started, and 20 percent of their population was killed. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's similar with the Vietnam. They they tried to just back the U.S.'s preferred groups. These preferred groups didn't get any support, so they started sending, you know small troop presence which escalated and escalated and escalated to the point where we're dropping tons and tons of agent orange and napalm and the strategy like you said earlier was basically you know plop down your set up camp and go into the woods and kill as many as possible and then when camp's overrun just blast it with agent orange and, and napalm uh, so it's the most destructive military strategy you could think of but um <laughs> well yeah. and the other thing too the other comparison you mentioned sort of how they trained you know, the people in South Korea, I think what also happened in Vietnam is they were supporting obviously South Vietnam and they sent all of these people to train in the Philippines and they built a bunch of Air Force uh, Army bases and whatnot down there. And that was sort of what enabled them to actually attack and go into Vietnam in the like the mid 60s is because they had built the infrastructure that they were using for French, I think is what happened. So. Wow, that's fascinating. Did, so, where you? What's that? Where you, I just want to know where you read that. So this is heard. this is all the same. It's all from uh, Killing Hope, uh, William Blum. Mm -hmm. He has like it's basically like a chapter of like every chapter in the book is like a different U.S. you know invasion or coup basically. And so um, I think that actually came out of the Panama Papers, but I'm not sure. I might be conflating things. Yeah, I would definitely recommend that book for anyone who just wants to read about each individual horrific thing that the u.s has done over the last 60 70 years yeah william blum is good i've read some of his stuff on east germany and, and shared some the other day um so i'll have to check that out it's interesting that the book is called um killing hope though because yeah. if you look at vietnam and the Viet Minh, it's one of the one of the most hopeful stories ultimately you know they, they had millions of their people killed but they held on to their sovereignty and you know, moved towards uh, constructing socialist society, the kind of society they want to create. Same with Korea. Um, so, and people get so mad and call us tankies when we support these revolutionary movements or support Ho Chi Minh. It's like, read their history. How could you not support them? They're, I mean, honestly, supporting the other side, you're literally supporting fascists. I mean, <laughs> like the, the South Vietnamese right. like government was literally referred to as like fascistic by the U.S. government. Like in the right. panel papers, the CIA basically said, they were fascists. Like you're going to support one of that? Right. I mean, literally like Vouch, um, not to bring up 
someone <laughs> none of us want to hear or talk about. But he literally said that in our back and forth. He's like, of course it would have been better if the South took over the Korean Peninsula instead of the North. Yeah, they were fascist a little bit because of us, but it still would have been better than communism. Like, oh, a communist who who thinks the fascists are better than commies. Um Sounds yeah, like you're that, not a real communist. There. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. That would be my my thought too. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other like crazy facts in this too. Is that in um, the 19 mid 1950s, the U.S. planted a bunch of uh, scholars at the at Michigan State University to basically come up with the plans for Vietnam, including how they would basically any Amer any Vietnamese that was 15 years or older was required to like create a government ID, say who they were from their religious information. So it's like another instance of like the CIA infiltrating, you know, and just doing what they want. Right. And they're, I mean, we have more than, more than enough examples of that. At yeah. This point. Yeah. It's uh, at some points it becomes a little bit overkill. Well, I guess not really. And it's wild that you have Henry Kissinger when there are still Vietnam War veterans with PTSD today. And, and in the movie on his, you know, as there's a really powerful scene, not only when they're leaving the part where um, uh, the, one of the sergeants gets killed, his name's, um, that's a really powerful scene too. Uh, yeah. Oh God. What's, the, was... what's his name again? Sorry. I'm oh, uh, Elias, right? Elias. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really powerful scene. And when, um, and when he's leaving, Charlie Sheen's character is leaving, he starts crying, looking at the devastation, talks about having to rebuild his life. You know, all the lives that were destroyed by this. And you have Henry Kissinger, you know, sitting in a pound of, I mean, sitting in immense wealth um, and privilege after committing genocide. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing, that plot of the movie, I remember when I was, when I was younger and I saw this movie, I always found that, that kind of, part where you know literally two sergeants are going at each other and he you know barnes lies and says he you know he died and then they all see him from the helicopter actually alive and have to watch him then die for real and it's i don't know how that's one thing i don't know how realistic if there were actually soldiers that were turning on each other to that point because it wasn't like he was actually siding with the vietnamese he was just being like, maybe we shouldn't do as much as we're doing. Right. And potentially could have been one of the people who snitched on Barnes who had committed all these war crimes. Um, yeah, that's probably true. He probably was, a, you know, I mean, you think that they would take him out of there once they knew these things, but they're like, well, he's actually a good soldier. So. Right. Yeah. And they, I think they float the idea beforehand, you know, like, Oh, what if he talks um, and they talk about killing each other, but. Yeah, I wonder how. I also wonder how realistic that was, and how many times that were hap that was happening. And I mean, it's interesting too. Even after that scene, um, when Elias dies, the troops are back at base talking about it, and Charlie Sheen's character wants to turn him in. Yeah. Um, as does one of the other characters. Um, I believe an African American character too. Going back to how they were, you know, more revolutionary in this movie. Um, but yeah. they're talking about turning him in. Then the other guy's like, no, no, we're not going to turn him in. So getting away with war crimes, another huge theme. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, I guess the idea is you could turn him in and they could say you did this other war crime. You know I mean? It's in the jungle. Like whose word was it? Like one, you know, PTSD soldier versus another. I mean, 
I think the thing with the My Lai Massacre was that there was lots of witnesses that weren't, uh, I'm sorry, journalists that witnessed it. So I think that's what I believe is why it, I don't know, actually. I feel like that's what, I don't remember now. You're right. I mean, so many had to be covered up that what I was thinking is we probably have no idea what the actual death toll is. And like, if you look at the death toll for Iraq um, and since Vietnam, the media has largely been barred um, from war zones. The U.S. military has gotten way more um, stringent with uh, what kind of media they'll allow um, to just film what they're doing, because Vietnam was, you know, after the um, television had become wildly popular in the U.S., so. Part of what spurred the anti-war movement was the fact that the media was there and people were seeing right. all these massacres for the first time. And like, oh, you know, this is the reality of war more so than World War II when they were reading about it. Um, but I can't remember I, where I was going now. Oh, I think I think you were talking about like the deaths in Iraq too, maybe. Oh yeah, I was just saying we probably don't like if you look up the death statistics in Iraq, they're all over the place. You yeah, know? they're like a hundred thousand to half a million, right? Like some of for just Iraqis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, we'll probably never know. Um, we didn't, you know, necessarily have the technology to, to keep track of those things back then or the census data or whatever. And I'm sure they're lowballing it, you know, military like, Oh, well, yeah. You know, I mean, I guess it's easy to know how many American troops died because there's records, mm-hmm. but we don't really care how many of their people died. Like in our mind, that's just, that's the casualty of war. I think there's someone, oh, what was I going to say? The, you know, saying like, oh, well, like war is, you know, I, I don't know if this is the movie where they mentioned war is hell. I don't know where that quote originates from. I know it's like a commonly used one. I think that Charlie Sheen's character midway through this movie uses that term, which is, you know, almost like a cliche. But he's like, yes, it's a it's war is hell. Or he says, uh, let's see. I think he just calls it hell. Right. It do- and the movie does along with giving a political message, it just does a really good job, like visually and um, from a story perspective of showing that war is hell, like showing the reality, you know, pretty much every scene, there's something crazy happening. Um, yeah. Threatening the lives of the, the main characters and killing some of them. So, yeah. W- one conversation that I, I made a note of that I thought was super interesting and also at the same time, kind of surprising is so um, like Chris Taylor, Charlie Sheen's character he signed up. He, he he actually enlists, and he thinks he's fighting for America. And like at, at the first, he's sort of hesitant. He's like, "Oh, what's what's you know?" This seems kind of crazy. But then he has a conversation before Elias dies, and Elias tells him that they're going to lose the war. And Chris basically Taylor says, "You know, like us, America, we're going to lose." It's like it's almost hard to believe because that's right. what you've been told that you can win, but right. here there's no winning. Right, that America's the best and that, you know, we can – and I think Elias says, like, we have it coming to us after we won the last few wars where there exactly. was more of a decisive victory. But like you said, how you know, what is winning in that scenario? Um, what does that even mean? And I, I, rem- I, it's funny. I remember as a kid asking my grandma, like, has the U.S. ever lost a war? And I was so like hoping that we had never lost a war. I wanted the U.S. to be the best and number one and win all these wars. And my grandma said Vietnam, actually. Um, and she's like, well, nobody really won. It just a lot of people died. Um, but th- I mean, that's the kind of mindset that you have or when, you know, you're indoctrinated with as a kid. It's America, number one, American exceptionalism, you know, 
And you see that in that scene where he's like, you know, what do you mean? How could we lose? And it's like, <laughs> you know, we, we just have no chance here. We don't understand the terrain. Um, we're in their home territory. They're prepared for this. There's, you know, no really achievable objectives here. Um, yeah. I mean, they weren't really prepared to fight in a, in a place like that. I mean, it's one thing to send in special forces. I mean, I feel like it's the same thing with Iraq and Afghanistan. Like we weren't really prepared to fight in a desert war, you know, it's right. American military spends so much money on its, you know, war machine, but it's, what are they really buying? I mean, other than, like right, stock, all, you know, stocks for, for the contractors, basically. Right. It's all for the military industrial complex. I mean, that's what keeps it going. And like, if you talk to the troops, they'll tell you how much money is is wasted. And there's actually a really, really good book uh, by a journalist and academic named Nick Terse called The Complex, where he lays out basically just the military industrial complex, all the companies that make it up. And like on military bases now, there's like Starbucks and like <laughs> Apple stores. So they're, literally every corporation in America is attached to the military industrial complex and they make money in all these different ways. It doesn't mean we have the best military. It doesn't mean we have more advanced missiles than Russia or China or whatever. They're actually catching up to us and surpassing us than that. It's, I'm not an expert in military strategy and stuff, but as far <laughs> as I know, they're surpassing us. Um, the U.S. is just this big bloated um, military industrial complex being funneled money by our government. That's siphoned out of the working class yeah the the the, yeah the i mean thinking about where the the, so between world war ii and vietnam there was obviously the korean war which is i mean a similar kind of territory so you know um the, the the i mean the the ramping up of military spending too after world war ii was like a fear of like military contractors like oh if you if we have nothing to fight, what are we going to like? Cause they turned all the factories into military factories. And so, you know, they just needed enemies. I mean, obviously they wanted to fight communism, but it was also an excuse to just sell a bunch of shit. Right. And that was after, right after, I don't know when Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex, but it was right about that time where he's like, this is forming, watch out for this. And yeah, you know, you see, like, right. Right. You see with Afghanistan, um, like we were there for so long, so long. And there was like opium production going on. There was some oil there and some resources, but a lot of it was just paying the military industrial complex, like keeping giant bases here um, with, like I said, like all these different amenities um, that like consumerist amenities from corporations. Um, It's literally just the government funneling money into wall street like here you go arms contractors we'll go sit in this country for 20 years and kill people if they come close to our bases i mean that was like the basis of the iraq war more so than it was to actually do anything was just to like the line like halliburton and the whole you know all that stuff is pretty well documented at this point but um one other thing about the the movie i was thinking about elias um and the like the lieutenant I think I mentioned earlier was just kind of like an incompetent lieutenant. He gives like the wrong location of like where to bomb, and he ends up like bombing them their own, yeah, their own location. I mean, I get that they're like talking on these phones, and you know, it's it's a jungle. Like, how do they ever even hit the right target? Is impossible. It's like mind boggling. But 
Right. They're, they're just like, they're just oh, napalming sorry, themselves, you know? Right. That, for, I had that written down to talk about because it's like, I believe that's right after Elias is talking about how there's no way for them to win. I think that might be the very next scene. I think you're right. It is. That is, that is the next scene. So, I mean, what a great way to show um, from a story perspective, like how senseless this death is. So you learn they're not going to win the war. They're there for no reason. And then they napalm and kill a bunch of their own troops. It's, yeah. And, and like, uh, I think everyone dies except for like a couple of them are like hiding underneath. And Charlie Sheen comes out and he just like is covered in like, I don't know how napalm works exactly. Is it just like the chemical that's on you, whatever it is. He's just a bloody mess. And like, there's no yeah. way that any of those guys would live past what? 50. Right. With the if they even make it out, they make it out. I mean, you know, they're just, yeah. Which is the effect that, you know, t- t- like you said, the, the Vietnam death stats now have to take into account the amount of people who are poisoned. Um, and their farmland was poisoned too. You know, they couldn't grow crops forever. And so, stupid you have reactionaries in america who will be like oh look at these socialist countries socialism hasn't worked they're poor like we bombed their freaking (laughs) agricultural supply with agent orange and napalm and poisoned it and then it's their fault for not being as rich as us like give me a break (laughs) well it's like the same thing like criticism criticism of a country like cuba where like you know everything was destroyed and then we embargo them so they can't actually trade and get the things mm-hmm. they need. It's like, oh, how come this poor country can't can't bootstrap itself up on socialism? It's like, well, actually, uh, I know why. Right. And they've been Cuba has been under the most stringent embargo in human history since uh, the 59 revolution. The only other one that compares is the U.S. sanction regime on the DPRK on North Korea, which, like we said, is a lot of parallels to Vietnam, where the U.S. destroyed their infrastructure killed 20% of their population, then put them under these stringent sanctions. And they're like, you know, why aren't you rich? And even Jimmy Carter admitted that, you know, the U.S. has done everything they can to boost up South Korea and done everything they can to destroy North Korea. Um, And then, you know, we look at them and we're like, why are you like this? Why aren't you as consumeristic and and wealthy as us? Um, Yeah. And I I have one more point that I forgot to say earlier when we were talking about how they even have these statistics um about like the death statistics from war the ones from korea that i list the 15 to 20 percent of their population and u.s um pilots were running out of targets to bombs they destroyed everything that's from u.s military personnel that's from curtis lemay um who was you know one of the leading air force um commanders during uh the korean war he's the one who estimated 15 to 20 percent of the population um so that's kind of interesting too. Yeah, I think not just is it I think it's not just 20% of the population, but I feel like it's 80% of like any building. Like infrastructure was also wiped away just like in an instant. Every building over two stories tall is yeah, another quote from from a US personnel and Pyongyang was just leveled. Before before the war they called Korea the Jerusalem or Pyongyang was called the Jerusalem of the East cuz they had so many churches and after the war they were all gone. Yeah, I've been. I've just recently been listening to the uh, blowback podcast about the seasons about South Korea, like the war there, and it's. I would recommend anyone who hasn't listened to it, but it goes pretty in depth. And they mentioned what you're talking about with South North Korea was a beautiful country or a beautiful. I want to call it a country, a beautiful place, and the same thing with what like you know Middle East where we 
in Libya. I mean, those are beautiful places that we just destroyed. Yeah, people talk about Iraq in the most heinous way. And I mean, it shows how how successful U.S. brainwashing and Islamophobic propaganda has been. But people talk about Iraq like it's nothing. And they'll, you know, just there's this joke, joke in the U.S. Like, oh, let's just nuke the Middle East. Get rid of all the terrorists. <laughs> and it's like, this is Mesopotamia. Iraq is Mesopotamia. The Middle East is the, you know, it's was the cradle of human civilization, the place where human civilization exploded. Do you know how much history there is there and how much, you know, knowledge and, and um, stuff to learn that we just, just bombed, destroyed. It's um, like yeah. the old school imperialist crusaders or whatever. And when they would burn down libraries as they pillage places, like that's basically what the U S is doing in modern day with modern weaponry. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, the, one of the other notes I had here too, I think it was soon after this, um, soon after when they bombed themselves or napalm themselves, Barnes is talking to, I don't remember who he was talking to, but he tells the people that he has no problem with anyone who does what he's told. And then he, I think he says, but if you, but if you don't, the machine breaks down. And I think he, like, I thought that was interesting the way they call it like a machine, I think like, you know, like a well-oiled machine, like everyone has to follow the orders of the person above them. And if you do all these things, but in Vietnam, like really, it just, I mean, maybe in World War II, you could argue in some of the battles, like if you follow the command line, things would quote unquote work out. But in, in this case, no, I mean. Right. And that kind of shows, I mean, the, he says we need to follow the machine. And like you said, there could be some logic there if it was a just war or, you know, if you were fighting Hitler Nazis. or whatever. Yeah. Nazis, right. Um, but here it doesn't make the machine is the military industrial complex. The machine doesn't care about you. You know, the machine's literally sending you to die. Um, and then if you get PTSD, when you come back, the machine's not going to take care of you. <laughs> right. um, so it's by disobeying the machine that we're going to get out of this uh, situation where this imperialist oligarchy is running our lives yeah yeah i'm trying to think um yeah i think I, and it's funny you said that because i think right after that part i don't remember which which soldiers are talking about it but they're saying oh once we get out of vietnam they're going to get uh they're going to be good to go i think like he might have i don't know if he used that exact words if that was my paraphrasing it like they're going to be taken care of. We're going to be, we're going to live nice lives after this. And we know that's like, I think about like Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. Like he comes home without his legs and he's barely scraping by, you know, living in off the government, but like not well. Right. And so they, we don't care about the troops once they come back. We just, you're an expendable body. Exactly. And I have a friend who works, uh, she's a social worker, works mostly with vets. And I mean, there's still a lot of people, she, she told me, she's like, there's still so many people messed up from like Vietnam um, who are, are still around and remember it. And um, it's crazy the lasting effect that it's had. And there, there, she's told me too, there are like programs that the military will make available, but you have to go do them yourself. And they're super, right. super hard, you know, and, and needlessly complex on purpose because they want to pay as little money as possible. And I, yeah, that scene was interesting. I think he said, like, it's going to be gravy once we get gravy. Back. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, yeah. All right. And it's, you're watching that, like, no, they're just, you know, they're doing drugs and doing whatever they can to just get through 
um, this time period. But then when they go home, as Charlie Sheen says at the end of the movie, they're going to have to rebuild their lives with trauma and PTSD. Yeah, I mean, they, they already have seen things that no one should, I mean, like really, you should never have to see. And they're being forced to, right? They're at least the ones who are, well, I would argue that even the people who are enlisting are almost forced to because they don't really have another avenue for their life, you know, unfortunately. Right. And Vietnam was the last war where we had the draft. So there were people just, you know, scooped up. Um, I think it was the last war where we had the draft, right? In my history. Yeah. Yeah. There's no other. I think the draft was like for 10 years, but I think it only was like pretty heavy early on. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Like someone 67 says, to 74 or something like that. Huh. Right. I see someone here saying Trump dodged the draft. I don't know if that's true, but I remember liberals attacking him over that. I remember <laughs> liberals saying, oh, you didn't go massacre people for us in Vietnam. You know, you're worse than all the good Republicans like John McCain, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah. yeah. I think <laughs> I think the Trump uh, like pretended he had a bone spur or is that John yeah, Kerry? I don't know which one. One of them. Yeah. yeah, right. Didn't John Kerry dra- like dodge the war? And then, like, of course, it was the opposite. Like, Republicans were roasting him for that. So it's like, it doesn't right. matter what size. You're just going to get roasted, basically. Right, for doing the right thing. And thankfully now, I think a lot of people know, um, like, Muhammad Ali dodged the draft. And he got so much shit. Like, people were – and, of course, obviously, you had, um, like, horrific racism out in the open at that time, too. So people were just – lambasting him calling him a coward you know why don't you move out of america if you hate it so much just because he doesn't want to participate in you know what amounts to attempted genocide on the people of cambodia and vietnam yeah yeah that's well i mean i think yeah like you're saying it's obviously was racially based you know if it had been i don't know i think about like athletes who went to fight during world war ii i mean world war ii was also seen differently it was like seen as like a justified invasion like i think of like ted williams baseball player like he goes to the war he's like seen as a hero for doing it whereas you know if a black player had done that they would have probably not felt the same right right you have the um always the element of racism there to use i mean imperialism so cynical it's going to use um racial divisions to prey on and divide the working class any way they can yeah one one of the last notes i had i think this is pretty close to the end of the movie like the end is kind of like it's not very like they have the tanks rolling through and it's not that satisfying but they kind of like feel like they've won a victory which is really just them bombing the crap out of them but the tank when it comes through did you notice it had a nazi flag on it a swastika i did not notice that and I looked it up to see what the reasoning was for. And I couldn't find any quotes from Stone, but people theorized that it was like meant to symbolize that the that like the diverse groups of people who were fighting. And you had uh, people from the South who might have been, you know, would have Confederate flags at home. So is it really that different? Like your fascism fights communism, so it's not really like a big leap. But kind right. of a weird stylistic choice, if you ask me. That is interesting. I'm sure it was intentional. And I mean, for sure. Yeah. The U S I don't, I'm not super familiar with the U S backed forces and 
Vietnam at the time. But we know, you know, if if there are fascists on the ground and communists are, are taking power, the U.S. will do whatever they can to help the fascists. Um, right. So I'm sure there were a lot of, you know, interesting like the people in Vietnam who sided with the U.S. I'm sure there were some very right wing political groups there and, and figures. Well, I mean, if you think I mean, saying that the three quarters of the people who were fighting there had enlisted, I mean, don't I mean, at the time, propaganda was pretty heavy in America against, you know, communism. So it would make sense to get people who perceived that as like they hate commies because, you know, they think of like USSR, Russia, or whatever that whatever their image in their head was in the 60s, Cuba. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't it's like it doesn't seem like a stretch to me to like have people who are just straight up right. fascists fighting in the war. For sure. The last couple, I had two more things um, written down in my notes. Um, The one was that from a filmmaking perspective, I thought the notes or the letters that um, Charlie Sheen's character was writing to his grandma were a good story device. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's kind of a big part of the movie. It's one of the more, um, I mean, the movie's about, we're mostly focusing on the politics and the economics and imperialism aspect, but it's also sort of about like the duality um, of man with where you have, you know, the more empathetic sergeant versus the, the violent evil one. Right. Um, and then you have Charlie Sheen's character writing to his grandma at first, like these are the best soldiers I've ever met. They're the best of the best. And, you know, slowly his um, letters home get more depressing and more cynical to the point by the end of the movie where he's not even writing home. Yeah. Someone asked him if he's still writing. He's like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. Right. Yeah. He's just totally like sort of embraced the war and the situation he's in. Doesn't even feel like writing home to explain what's going on. Yeah. I mean, that, that does like, that makes you feel, I, I mean, it was, I, I mean, obviously said it was like a plot device, but it makes you feel like empathetic for the soldiers. I mean, in his case, he volunteered to go, but still like you're meant to still, like these are like 19 year old, 20, 21 year old kids that are there, like just dropped in the middle of a jungle and be like, just go kill people. I mean, yeah, like I said, I'm like, I'm not trying to like support what they're doing, but at the same time, like you got like, you feel pretty bad for them, what they're going through. Right. And honestly, I think it's a testament to Oliver Stone that this movie does make you empathize empathize, um, with the American or some of the Americans, some of them not so much. Um, But you know, it's not like a sermonizing movie where he's just preaching at you the whole time. Right. You know, yeah, it's yeah. very subtle. And it, from a film, I mean, I'm not a film expert, but it's a good film, even if it wasn't for the political message, I feel like. And uh, actually a crazy thing that I saw too, or I think I knew this before, but it was only, it was made for only $6 million. It was like considered like a wow. low budget movie, which huh. almost feels impossible given, like it looks good, you know? I mean, I guess there aren't that many lots of explosions i mean the special effects back then weren't exactly top not like top level but it like looks good for six million bucks kind of and it made 130 million i think yeah 138 million on six million that's why you got to make more anti-imperialist movies hollywood yeah people like it it reminds me of a lot of movies like john carpenter movies where he makes all those low budget movies and i mean they don't all do really well but that's really kind of how you have to make a movie like that. You have to make a low budget movie that you're willing to fund. Yeah. Not necessarily yourself, but through different channels, you know? Right. 
I mean, Platoon, I'm sure, didn't have a bunch of movie studios looking to shell out money. And if you look at Oliver Stone's newest movie, Ukraine on Fire, which is about an issue that's going on right now that the U.S. is trying to lie about, like, you can barely find it. And if you go to it on YouTube, you have to log into your account and show that you're 18 years or older. You know, it's got all these barriers to actually viewing it. Um, so, yeah, there's there's not a lot of funding for stuff like this. And as we were saying at the beginning, it's impressive that Oliver Stone even got this movie made. Um, the last thing I had written in my notes was uh, something I read after um, Charlie Sheen's character has the showdown with Barnes um, and he kills him. He goes for the grenade and almost pulls the pin. Um, he like fumbles with the pin to, and thinks about committing suicide. Um, which wasn't in the script, Oliver Stone said. Charlie Sheen just did that because he thought the character would do it, and they left it in the movie because um, Oliver Stone thought it was good, which is crazy. But I mean, the, I can't, there's a bunch of insane statistics about the number of veteran suicides, but estimated 50 to 100,000 um, Vietnam Jeez. veterans committed suicide, which is insane. God, that's insane. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, it touches on that as well. Yeah, that, I, I didn't know that fact that that part was like improvised because it kind of like plays into his like character development. Like you don't get that much character development from anyone except, I mean, the story is told through his eyes, so it makes sense that it's through his eyes. But he, like the letters slowing down, he's depressed. He he's counting down the days. Like he knows. I, I remember like they ask him early on, like how many days left. He's like three hundred and. 54 or something because he'd been there for like a week and he's just you know like they're kind of like like you got to find some way to look at that as positive and mm -hmm. he's depressed and yeah it does kind of make sense that he would just blow himself up at the same time as blowing up you know this piece of shit lieutenant sergeant whatever right yeah it's uh interesting i mean shout out to charlie sheen before he yeah. went a little bit haywire i guess <laughs> Yeah, I was I was trying to look to see. Uh, so this is a, another random stat. Apparently, they wanted um, Al Pacino in this movie, <laughs> but he um, I, it doesn't say what happened. Like he didn't either didn't want to do it, or they just couldn't. They probably didn't want to have to pay him as much because Al Pacino wasn't as like a rock star in like nineteen what uh, what year is this eighty six. So I guess, yeah. But the other crazy thing is he wrote this script in the 70s. So this script had been sitting for a long time. Huh. So that, wow. that probably also speaks to the fact that like they couldn't get it made. Right. Yeah, that's probably what it was. They couldn't find funding. And um, and they wanted to wait till it was over. Like the one of the quotes I say over and over and over again is everybody's an anti-imperialist in hindsight. <laughs> everybody's an anti-imperialist 20 years after the war happened. We have the Pentagon Papers and whatever else to prove that the U.S. was lying and massacring civilians. But when the U.S. is trying to manufacture consent, you know, it's like, oh, you don't support Vietnam. You're a genocide denier and a tanky and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I'm sure those weren't the words back then, but um it's the same. It's the same with every U.S. intervention. You're a tanky and a denier of human rights abuses and just a real piece of shit if you're against what the U.S. is yeah. doing. Then 20 years later, it's popular. You know, now right, we can right. talk about Iraq without being a Saddam supporter or whatever. Oh, yeah, I had I had friends. I was uh, in college when the invasion of Iraq went down, and I had friends who I would like argue with for hours about like they're like oh yeah we have weapons of mass destruction we got to go in and i was just then being like what the fuck are you talking about 
like this is just like have this is i mean then i wouldn't have considered myself as like as left as i am now and even then i could see like america is always lying like don't you right. see this and 10 15 years later they're like oh yeah actually you're right that was bullshit i'm like see like this is like literally your point right you know <laughs> exactly right you just have to wait a few years to get proven right but then it's like you know i didn't want to i'm not i don't care about about getting proven right i wish you guys would have been about against the war when it was happening when we were they were lying to you about it yeah the, i mean the problem is that us propaganda and all that is just so effective <laughs> mm -hmm. i i think entertainment media and you know the dod's control of hollywood is probably more effective than just straight up propaganda like you have cable news right cnn yeah. and you know fox supporting imperialism of course you know and nyt of course printed the story on the front page about saddam having weapons of mass destruction that was false that judith butler had gotten from u.s intelligence agencies and just printed um so obviously the new news and politics media is going to be corrupt but then you have people underestimate how much they're lied to by hollywood and you know how much effort and money the imperialists put into controlling entertainment media like Zelensky was just on the cover of time magazine yeah um so stuff like that has a big effect on people yeah the the i saw this was came out maybe a couple years ago years ago but i saw something i can't remember the guy on msnbc he was like a host or something like that but he basically came out and said something to the effect of Oh, you know what this was? It was during the 2016 election. Basically, if they said anything bad about Hillary Clinton, like on MSNBC, they would get like a call for her campaign being like, you're being too mean about me. And the same thing happened also with just, you know, they weren't allowed to be too left about anything. Like even if it was like literally moderate positions, like, sorry, you're too left. So they were, and this is like DOD, you know, telling them this. And actually the other thing that people tend to maybe dis discount NPR is a very, very much controlled by these, you know, like they bring people on their show that are fair and balanced. And it's basically just a state department official just towing the comp like company line. You know, like I used to think that NPR was this like unbiased source. Mm -hmm. It's not. Right. My parents asked me that when I was first getting into like anti-imperialism and working my way towards socialism um they're like is npr a good source i'm like yeah definitely you know they talk really nice and you know they use big words so they can't be in favor of murderous imperialist wars <laughs> i mean i think what that's what makes it so effective though is that it's mm -hmm. like you know uh i mean that's not to say that every show on npr is bad like they have in you know in new york and other cities they have call-in shows about local government like that's okay you know you're talking about your your local issues but it's the national correspondents that are just you know is china in your refrigerator we we find out at six you know right yeah no no shade at the tiny desk concerts um <laughs> yeah those but... are good <laughs> well yeah it's it's kind of crazy and it's crazy once you kind of I mean, it takes a little bit to really wrap your head around how controlled everything is, you know, how um, like Michael Parenti's Inventing Reality is a good book to read that kind of oh, blows yeah. your mind where it's like, oh, my gosh, the DOD and the, the um, State Department and the Pentagon are control everything. You know, the, the 
media is lying. The entertainment media um, is lying. But it's hard to see that um, until you realize what's going on. And then once you do, you're like, oh, my God, it's NPR. It's New York Times. It's these respected news outlets, too, that are just blatantly lying about every single enemy state of the U.S., no so, this is, so this is so uh, this is this reminds. I don't know why I thought of this then, but this is also from that William Blum book. So he was talking about the U.S. involvement in the fifties. This is before like the head, you know, the Vietnam War officially started. So what they wanted to do is they dropped leaflets in North Vietnam, saying how corrupt the the government was and how bad communism was to push more people to. Is it emigrate or defect? I don't know what the official word would be. Basically, defect, to, yeah. yeah, to go to South Vietnam. And so they basically were creating these like fake leaflets, um, propaganda slogans for saying that the Virgin Mary had departed from the North, like playing on the religious aspect. It's, it's, and this wow. is all like straight up CIA, just, you know, run of the mill. I mean, this is abroad, so it's different, but I think in America, it's, everything and i think that's what we were talking at the very beginning is how deeply ingrained hollywood is to the military and it's funny how people call hollywood like left like right. oh it's in the pocket of of liberals and socialists They're i got into an argument with someone recently saying how like all of the directors and studios are like communists i'm like i'm sorry that's, that's just not true it's just so far from the truth They're owned by those darn communist uh, multinational corporations and the darn communist u.s state department and department of defense that's crazy i i'm glad you told me that story about the leaflets um or that historical fact because i didn't know that and a point that i always make because when the u.s was doing their first coup after world war ii when they were really left as the dominant global hegemon or the the main superpower um, when they were cooing Guatemala, they flew planes over and did the same thing, dropped these anti-Jacobo Arbenz pamphlets. And um, it shows the importance of propaganda and winning the information war and how good the U.S. is, is at doing it. Um, and obviously, we did a podcast about Edward Bernays a while back, who's one mm -hmm. of the you know fathers of these sort of propaganda techniques. But now with Syria and Libya, a huge part of what allowed the U.S. to do what they did um, was using social media doing influence campaigns, not just here domestically, but there in Syria and Libya to get, you know, coalitions of people to overthrow the government. Um, they did the same thing with SOS Cuba. So, you know, when people, people will talk, call you a conspiracy theorist, if you say that there's influence campaigns going on or that, you know, social media matters and the info information war matters, but it absolutely does. If it didn't matter, the, you know, state department wouldn't put so much money and effort yeah. into it. And, you know, yeah. I, obviously it's, easy for me to say that as a content creator, but I used to not even think that, Like you know, I can do some good with, um, with social media or whatever, you know, but there's only so much you can do or whatever. And which is true. Yeah. Obviously you got to organize in real life, but it does matter. You know, it matters to yeah. debunk these lies. And that's why they kill people and arrest people who do it. It's, it's, it's funny you mentioned the SOS Cuba, but I think this is like a lesser known thing is that the state department through us aid tried to set up a social media, a new social media app in Cuba in I think 2012 or 13 purely to get people that were already, you know, they're on the U S side there on the ground to promote whatever they wanted. And I think it like it flopped or there was some technical problem with it, but 
they will go to great lengths. And the thing about the Vietnamese uh, leaflets is they pass them out to people in the north as if they basically forged it being from like the Ho Chi Minh camp. Wow. So it wasn't just like they're dropping leaflets. They're like making it appear to be like propaganda that's meant for them. Wow, that's so twisted. <laughs> I mean, I, I just I think about like that being your job at the CIA is you're just like typing up. I mean, I guess it was easier back then when there was no digital fingerprint on things. I don't right. know. Maybe it's harder. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And I mean, I think that's why we get so many whistleblowers now. Um, and, you know, old CIA agents will just be like, tell you, you know, tell journalists or academics basically everything they did and how horrible it was. Because, um, you know, those people inside these institutions are still human. A lot of them get tricked. Like, I'm fighting for my country. And then, you know, their job is to do something like that. And it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> then they come out as a whistleblower and they get persecuted. Like, what's going on to, with Assange? And yeah, I mean, we don't uh, we don't like our secrets. Uh being shared with the world even exactly. and th what they wanted to do i think in one of parenti's books he talks about this no actually no it wasn't a parenti it's in i think in vj prashad's washington bullets he talks about how they use the idea of a conspiracy theory to make you seem crazy and so that your idea is a cons that's like that's how the conspiracy theory term like became about was anti-communist so it's it's a very interesting yep. thing that is Washington bullets. Cause I've definitely used that um, a handful of times or quoted that a handful of times or showed it to people. Like it's such a good book. Everyone should read that. It is. It's it, one of the, maybe one of the most like essential reads um, for modern day, but yeah, the CIA said in one of their documents, like if you're against what we're doing, or if you, you know, link us to it, if you say the CIA is doing this, we're going to call you a conspiracy theorist and link you to people who think, you know, lizards run the world or whatever, um, wacky conspiracies to make you seem ridiculous. So it's a stated strategy. And if you say that to people, they'll, you know, even American liberals will be like, oh, well, that's a conspiracy theory. Like, read yeah. the CIA's own documents and just yeah. quit saying conspiracy. I mean, I think that almost even comes around to, like, I don't want to, like, bring up, like, cancel culture as, like, a topic. But, like, they use that as a way to justify, like, it's almost like the new way of doing it. Because we know so much about what the CIA did. It's like if you're a, a teacher at a university and you support Palestine, you are then deemed, like, you know, you have to be fired. And so it's like you're canceling them. And that's really what cancel culture is going after. It's people with the actual, like, you know, not we'll call it whistleblowers, but telling the truth. And right. it's not like the rich people who like celebrities, like Chris Pratt, like he's, he's fine. Like he didn't get canceled. Right. And yeah, we don't have to open up this whole bag of worms <laughs> too much, but I think you're a hundred percent right that. I mean, we just have to admit it, like the empire is cynical and they'll use whatever they can to lie and do what they need to do, like we said. So, of course, they're going to co-op social justice movements. Of course, they're going to co-op, quote unquote, wokeism um, and use it for cynical ends and use cancel culture to cancel people who disagree with them. And, you know, say, oh, if you don't support this invasion or these drone strikes, you're against women's rights and against the LGBTQ community and you know, look how woke the CIA is. Aren't they great? Um, so, yeah, it's just the new emerging face of empire. And, and we got to realize it for what it is. It's almost like 
they're trying to be like left-wing imperialists now. Yeah. This is, I don't know why I thought of this now. I made a video about this a few, maybe a month ago, because it relates to the CIA is that the, um, like Gloria Steinem was in the CIA and she, like, they were like, even like feminist and other waves of art and literature was all CIA. Like Iowa Writers Workshop was basically funded by the CIA. So they will put whatever, I mean, this actually, this isn't really on topic, but it was related to the CIA. I just wanted to, people don't, and then she, but her comment about it was she called the CIA a good organization and like, isn't as bad as people say, which I think is, is super funny. Wow. <laughs> is it called, I work really with them. They're, they're nice people. They don't right, care. Right. I would, they seem cool. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they gave me half a million dollars in a, in like a, in a briefcase. So. <laughs> Not as bad a guys as everyone says. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, do you have anything else that you wanted to discuss before we wrap it up? We've been going for about an hour and a half. Um, yeah. I mean, as far as the movie goes, I mean, just as like my, you know, if you have any final thoughts, but I mean, I think just generally we've already said it's, I think it, it's one fault is not showing kind of the plight of the Vietnamese other than kind of as props for what the U.S. was doing. So I think that's like the one downfall of this movie. But I think anyone who hasn't seen it, I would definitely recommend checking it out. You can watch it on various. I found it for free somewhere with like ads, but you can you can watch it free for with ads and and, and definitely check out other Oliver Oliver Stone movies, um, especially around this era, which I think were Salvador is another one we mentioned offline is a it's a really good movie to check out, too. Yeah, I agree and echo that. One of my favorites is the JFK movies. He did oh, one so good. more recently. Um, he did one a while back and then did another one, like basically saying everything I said in 1991 has been confirmed now by more leaked um, information. Uh, Salvador is good. My dad shows that to his students in his Spanish class. Um, uh, Platoon is just kind of like a classic. It's a, uh, like a classic anti-war movie basically now. Um so yeah, I'd say that's if you're gonna start getting into Stone's work, um, Platoon's probably a good one to start with. Um, and then I would say make sure you watch Ukraine on Fire, just for the fact that it's the most relevant movie in the world today, like for Americans to watch. It is the best thing you can watch as an American to understand Ukraine. Um, exposes all the lies um, of the media, all the things that happened that were not told about. Um, which is why the movie's been heavily suppressed and you may not have heard of it. So Yeah, I was about to say it was off. briefly taken off YouTube, but I think you can still get it. And actually, mm -hmm. this is something that we we that I didn't mention that has to be said is that Oliver Stone fought in Vietnam. Oh, I didn't even know that. So he was in the army. He fought in uh 67 to 68. He was in the Marines before that, and he got uh -huh. like purple heart. He's like super decorated. Wow. So it actually makes even I should have mentioned this at the beginning. So it makes even more sense that he would fit some of these stories in. So some of this shit probably happened to him. Right. He probably witnessed it firsthand. I didn't even know that. That adds a whole new layer to it, though. Yeah, that, um, that would have been that, I, I forgot to mention that. I think it's kind of shows his perspective of the war. So he fought. He was not a wealthy um, person growing up as far as I understand it, or he might've been like middle. Well, I'm not sure how wealthy he was, but I think that he's like came from a military family. Like his parents 
or his father had fought in World War II. Hmm. So and that's, that's, that's a good little nugget for everyone. That is interesting. And one of the characters mentions in the film, my dad fought in World War II, or I have a history, military family history. So I'm sure a lot of Oliver Stone's own experiences made it in there. And he actually makes a cameo in the movie as a um, as someone who gets blown up right away. Um, oh, so someone said he wasn't in the Marine Corps. I misspoke. It's that he was in the Merchant Marines, not the Marine Corps. Oh, okay. Interesting, though. Yeah. So that's a, a fun little thing. But yeah, so I saw you posted the, the Ukraine on Fire link. I originally had saw it and then I didn't finish it and the link was gone. This was maybe like a year ago. And then someone sent me the new one. So glad it's uh, still available for people. For sure. Yeah, you can. It'll always be up somewhere. You'll always be able to find it somewhere, no matter how bad they try and suppress it. So, well, thank you so much for coming on. Do you have anything that you want to promote? Um, I've got uh, the Left of the Projector podcast linked in our description down there. Make sure you all go give it a follow. Yeah. Yeah. You can, yeah, I don't, I don't, the, yeah, you can check out the podcast on whatever platform, you know, Spotify, Apple, you can just get the, if you want to use your own, you know, feeder, you can do that too. So you can go uh, check it out. And uh, we have an episode last week uh, on Forrest Gump with uh, five different, uh, five comrades just kind of ragging on the movie because I don't like Forrest Gump, but yeah, we're going to be doing some more, I don't know this this stream works out pretty well i might have to look into to doing that kind of content because it's a lot of fun to do it that way and get all the people on screen too it's yeah but but for i i gotta thank you for for letting me uh, come on and taking the time to to watch and and talk about platoon you bet this was a lot of fun um definitely get yourself on Streamyard if you um are interested because this it just makes it really really easy um i can stream to multiple different platforms and pull up people's comments so it might be good for you but thank you for um even presenting me with this idea um it's not some you know carlos has done some tv show and movie reviews on our channel but it's not something we've done a lot of but like we were saying today the dod is all over hollywood there's so much imperialist propaganda in entertainment media um, this kind of content is valuable. Not only is it interesting to people because um, we're talking about movies and, and stuff that they know about or that they've seen, um, but it's worthwhile to debunk all of the imperialist nonsense that's in our entertainment media um, surrounding yeah. us every day. So appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, hopefully some of our our followers go over and give you a follow and some support there. Awesome. Yeah, and, and I think even even beyond just like war movies, I think looking at film from a leftist perspective isn't something you see that often, which mm -hmm. is kind of what led me into to doing it. Originally, this was going to be a horror movie podcast, but I thought it would be more fun to just branch out. So, but yeah, so again, you can follow left of the projector and uh, look forward to taking your comments. For sure. Thanks for coming on comrade. And thanks everybody who watched the stream today. Thank you to the mods. Appreciate y'all always. Um, we'll see you next time. Solidarity. Right. Have a good one.